I know, dear Joseph, that he will carry you. For those of you that were a part of our teen group for many years. Uh, that was from a musical dreamer. And God has a wonderful dream for all of us. And He has provided us all that we need to become all that He has intended for us to be. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 16 through 24 today. The title of today's message is Seven Keys to Becoming an Infectious Encourager. As you're well aware, today is Mother's Day. So I thought you might enjoy a list of things that mothers have taught us. You know, my mother uh, is about five foot five. When we were adolescents, um, when my brother was a senior and I was a sophomore in high school, my brother was about six foot one, uh, 210 pounds. He'd been a football player. Big, burly guy, strong as an ox. I was probably about that time as a sophomore, maybe five foot six, always quite a bit smaller than my brother and still am, obviously. Maybe I weighed 140, 145 pounds. My mom, who was 5'6", she weighed probably about 125, 130. She was a beautiful and is a strong woman. We loved and respected our mom. But she taught us a lot of things along the way. You know, even though we were bigger in size and stature, we knew, we always knew that mom could take both of us. And we had a respect for our mom. We knew that if for some reason we even thought about even taking mom, we never thought about it, we never considered the possibilities, it it scared us to think about the possibilities. We knew that dad was standing behind her. So our mothers taught us a lot of things. For me and my brother, she taught us about time travel. If you boys don't straighten up, I'm going to knock you into the middle of next week, she'd say. I remember as a child, hear her yelling up to the top of the stairs. We had a bedroom upstairs. It was a a Tudor kind of a house, and, and it was just us upstairs. And my brother and I would often be wrestling and fighting, as brothers will do. And, and I would hear my mom yell up the stairs, Don't make me come up there, or you'll be sorry. You've been there. You see, mothers teach us a lot of things. Many mothers teach us about logic. If everyone else were to jump off a cliff, would you jump off a cliff too? Mothers teach us to meet a challenge. What were you thinking? Answer me when I talk to you. Don't talk back to me. (laughs) Mothers teach us about humor. When the lawnmower cuts off your toes, don't come running to me. (laughs) Our mothers teach us about roots. Were you boys raised in a barn? Or about religion? You better pray that that comes out of the carpet. Finally, my favorite. Mothers teach us about contortionism. Will you look at that dirt on the back of your neck? <laughs> Thanks, moms, for all that you teach us. Here's a few things that we've, our mothers learned from their children. 
You have learned that a three-year-old's voice is louder than 200 adults in a crowded restaurant. When you're in another room and you hear the toilet flush with the words, Oh no, immediately following, you already know it's too late. You have learned that a dime can pass through a three-year-old's digestive tract in about, oh, 24 hours. Just ask Connor. And finally, you have learned that going to the bathroom in private is a luxury. There's absolutely no doubt that mothers have a powerful influence on our lives. Indeed, families are the crucible in which character is formed. I like what Chuck Swindoll said about the family. Whatever else may be said about the home, it is the bottom line, the anvil upon which character is developed. The anvil on which conviction is hammered out is that place where life's bills come due. The single most influential force in our life of existence. And I have to agree with Swindoll's words. In our study today, we are looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 20. But in verse 11 it says, Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up. Just, in fact, you are doing You see, we are to encourage one another as believers in the faith. Today's title of the message is Seven Keys to Becoming an Infectious Encourager. You know, the most enthusiastic people on earth ought to be those of us who are part of the family of God. As Christians, we have reasons to be infectiously enthusiastic about life. After all, we are at peace with the Creator God. Our eternal destination has been bought and paid for by the blood of the Lamb. And the Creator Himself has supplied us all that we need to live life and to live life to its full. To become all that He has created us to be. Deep within every believer, there should be such an authentic exuberance that we cannot contain it, even if we tried. Perhaps a major reason that so many of us lack this zest for life, this winsome zest for life, is that we allow the burdens, the struggles, the circumstances of life to to preoccupy our time. So if if so, these seven verses that we will look at, that we will probe this morning, they will contain counsel for all of us that have allowed circumstances to take away our joy. Seven keys to becoming an infectious encourager. Number one, rejoice always. You see it there in verse 16, be joyful always. Nothing is more infectious and obvious than genuine joy. Does joy permeate your life? Does laughter ring throughout your home? If not, then perhaps you've allowed the circumstances of life to dictate how you will live your life. Don't allow your circumstances to rob you of your joy. I'm not talking about being self-motivated or having a a willed enthusiasm for life. No, I'm speaking about a real, genuine, authentic joy. Joy that is, or at least should be, a byproduct of an authentic relationship with the Holy God who died for you and for me. Who loves us so much 
that He gives us life. I'm speaking about an authentic joy that comes from the heart of God Himself. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. You see, too often we get our, our eyes on our circumstances, on the struggles of life, on the burdens of life, when all along we should be fixing our eyes on Jesus. Who is He? He is the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the one who will do it. He is the one who will enable us to become all that He has created us to be. Who for the joy set before Him, you see, when Christ died on the cross, He died for you. He died for me. It was, it was the joy of your salvation, of my salvation, that, that challenged Him, that equipped Him, that motivated Him to go to the cross. In that garden, when He said, Lord, take this from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but Thine be done. I, I just have to believe that it was with you in mind, with me in mind. That he went all the way and paid the price so that we might have life and have it to its full. So do not allow your circumstances to take away your joy. Several years ago, I went on a teen trip with the students to Cedar Point. Terry Wright was one of our adult sponsors on that trip. It turned out to be a rainy, chilly day. It was really quite cold, and, and the rains came down, and, and we were enjoying ourselves. This was probably about in 1995, as I think back over it. So quite a while ago, uh, students were riding their rides and we met at our meeting place that afternoon and people were leaving the park. I was thinking as students began to come back, they were shivering and their lips were a little bit blue. I'm thinking this trip is a bust. We might as well pack it up and go home. Well, as we're waiting there, here comes Terry Wright and four or five other guys, and they're running in, splashing through the water, just having the time of their life, just enjoying life. And they're saying, hey, there's no lines. Join us. (laughs) And their enthusiasm became contagious. And I watched as their enthusiasm began to move through the group that we were with, and as everybody else was leaving, we began to enjoy the lack of lines. And before long, the sun came out and, and our clothes dried off and we had the best time I could ever remember having at Cedar Point. One person's attitude changed the whole dynamic of that situation. Well, the, the purpose of that story is very simple. Don't allow your circumstances to rob you of your joy. Number two, pray Unceasingly, You see it there in verse 17. It says, pray continually. The only way that we can have a heart full of joy is to be free of the burdens of life. And the only way we can rid ourselves of burdens is to release them. The idea here is not a 24-hour non-stop prayer. It is praying unceasingly. That is, every time we come up against a problem, a circumstance, we cast our cares upon Him because He cares for us. It's giving God our burdens. Pray continually. Number three, give thanks in everything. You see it there in verse 18? Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You see, when we receive forgiveness, we grow in gratefulness. And gratitude is the healing ointment of brokenness. Did you hear that? Gratitude is the healing ointment of brokenness. 
Have you ever noticed that two different people can have diametrically different ideas about the same situation? It's the old adage whether the glass is half empty or half full. The distinction is more than just personality types, whether one is an optimist or a pessimist, whether or not uh, it's just a part of your DNA. Often people say, well, it's easy for you, Rex. It's, that's just who you are. You're, you're an encourager. That's your life. You're the... Well, maybe true. And yet God calls all of us to encourage one another. It, it's more than being an optimist or a pessimist. It's more than having a certain personality type. You see, an ungrateful person sees the glass half empty and wonders who is holding out on him. However, the grateful person sees the glass half full and knows that someone has shared with them more than they deserve. The lack of gratitude will almost always manifest itself in abundance of greed and self-centeredness. And when we are grateful, we see and experience life with a healthy optimism. When we lack gratitude, we move towards pessimism and cynicism. You see, at the core of our ability to give thanks in everything is our understanding of who God is in our life. Have you ever heard the expression, you get what you deserve? All of us have heard that at one time. But the reality is, we deserve nothing. You see, everything that we have is from the Creator Himself. Life is from the Creator. The world in which we live is from the Creator. Everything that we have is from God. So be grateful. You see, when you take this vantage, you allow yourself to see life from the glass half full perspective. So give thanks in everything. Turn with me to Luke chapter 7, verse 47. Luke chapter 7, verse 47. And I've marked it here in my Bible. Oh, and we put it up on the screen. This is the woman, this is the story of the sinful woman. She goes in and anoints uh, Jesus with perfume. She weeps at his feet and, and with her tears washes his feet. Simon the Pharisee is disgusted by all this. And this is Jesus' response in verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she has loved much, but he who has loved, but, but he who has been forgiven little, loves little. On the face value of this scripture, it's, it's one that's hard to make the application apply. What, what does that mean? Are we supposed to sin more so that we can love more? What is the scripture saying? Well, of course it's, it's not saying that. But what it's talking to us is about this whole concept of gratitude. You see, I'm afraid that far too often we fail to recognize the depth of God's love and the reality that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You see, Romans 3.23 tells us that very clearly. There's not a one of us that is better than the other. And it wasn't a matter that Simon Peter was not capable, not Simon, Simon the Pharisee was not capable of loving at the same capacity as the sinful woman. 
It just was simply that he did not recognize the grace of God in his life. And we too will not recognize the grace of God until we come to that place where we recognize the significance of being thankful in all things. What is it we deserve? The reality is we deserve nothing. Everything is a gift from God. And so when we find that reality in our lives, we become grateful for His blessing. For all of sin. There's not a one of us that is better than the other. If not for the grace of God, there go I. And so it's out of that heart, out of that heart of God that we find this place where we're able to forgive and encourage others. Did you see it there? Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Number four, do not quench the Spirit. Verse 19 says, do not put out the Spirit's fire. The truth is, God's Spirit will not force a believer through the process of becoming holy. See, the Scripture says, be ye holy as your Heavenly Father is holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And yet Christ will not force us to be like Him. We must be willing. We must be willing to be molded by the Master as the the potter molds the clay. Allow Him to shape us to become all that He has created us to be. In 2 Timothy, it says, we are to fan into flame the gift of God. And He has given us His Holy Spirit. And so we have to be careful not to quench the fires of the Holy Spirit when He speaks to you with that still, small voice. Listen to Him. Allow Him to guide you, to direct you as He speaks to you through His Word, as He speaks to you through prayer, as the Holy Spirit speaks to you and guides you. Listen to His voice. Number five, we respect respect the Word of God. You see it there in verse 20. Do not treat prophecy with contempt. We find direction in His Word. He teaches us principles by which we should live by. But He also gives us the wisdom of believers who have gone before us. Uh, You know, so often... When we seek counsel of those who are a little wiser than us in the faith, we can find direction. But you have to be careful. You have to be careful not to accept everything. However, just because someone comes to us claiming to have a word from the Lord does not mean that we believe him or her. God wants us to be spiritually discerning and, and not gullible. It goes on to say in verse 21, test everything, hold on to the good. See, the reality is we, we need to test everything according to, to God's Word and His principles and he, His precepts. Is it right? Is it reasonable? Is it scriptural? Is it providential? We see God's hand in all this. Test everything, hold on to the good. Point number six. There was a time where um, Debbie and I made a move from Michigan to the West Carrollton Church in the Nazarene in, in Dayton, Ohio. And when we made this move, we uh, prayed about it. And, and as we interviewed with the board, it became very obvious to us that God had ordained this time for us. And we made the move. 
When I went back and talked to the pastor there at the Michigan church, he told me that I was going against God's will. He went on to tell the church board that Pastor Rex is going against God's will. And I'm thinking, well, okay, how do you know God's will? I prayed about this. I felt very clear. So we have to be discerning. We have to make sure that we're not gullible. How do we understand that? Well, we, use, do it, we follow the scriptural advice. We test and approve everything. Hold on to the good. We could use Wesley's uh, source for understanding our theological conclusions. There are four sources here. Scripture. Uh, we can use the Old and the New Testament to be our guide. Tradition. What does tradition, his, uh, Christian history teach us? Reason, rational thinking, and sensible interpretation. And of course, experience. The Wesleyan quadrilateral. And finally, point number seven. Avoid every kind of evil. Over the years, I have bragged about having an uncanny sense of balance. And in my office, I have a plaque that says so, given to me from you. But the truth is, I have fallen, th- I have fallen through the ice in Xenia, off a ladder in Oklahoma, through a roof in Peru, South America. I've stepped off the wrong side of a ladder in Toronto, Canada. I, I fell off scaffolding in Springdale, Ohio. There have been many times in my life where I have fallen. But every one of these situations has a common denominator. Every single one of them happened because I stood too close to the edge. You see, we're to avoid every kind of evil. Don't stand too close to the edge. Don't flirt with the evils of this world. Embrace holiness. Flee from that which is unholy. Don't stand too close to the world. Avoid every kind of evil. Today, mothers, every woman in the church... We want to take with you a, a packet of seeds. I forgot to bring mine up here. And as that, you plant that packet of seed in your uh, garden or um, in a pot, and as it grows this year, this is our prayer for you and for your family. May God Himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the one who calls you, he is faithful. And he will do it. God is the one who sanctifies us. Let's be encouragers of the faith. My prayer is that we will be faithful. That all who come behind us will be faithful. This past weekend, I was with some dear friends, Dave and Annette Murky. We were at Olivet Nazarene University for my son's graduation. Dave and Annette were there for their daughter-in-law. And we just shared with Pete and Sharon Allis about our college years, and we just had a wonderful time. Well, Paul Murky is um, my wife's pastor when we got married, and he performed our wedding. He's a man that taught me about what it means to love. You see, I saw compassion in him 
and through his actions like I'd never seen before. He loved his people. He was a shepherd of his flock. And my prayer is for you and for me is that the Lord would find us faithful. Pastor Edgar is going to come and, and we're going to listen to this song of the day. My hope is that you also will be faithful to the call of God in your life.